Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show. This is your host, Drew Von Sayo, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates, starting today with the baseball side of things. As the Pirates are officially three games into the 162-game season, this afternoon's contest against the St. Louis Cardinals officially postponed due to weather. That game set to be made up on June 14th as part of a day-night doubleheader. Now, looking at the first three games for the Pirates, taking one of the three isn't necessarily all that bad. Obviously, you would have liked to have seen the Pirates come away with two of the three. They could have possibly gotten two of four had today's contest been played. But the one thing that I noticed early on is the fact that the Pirates' starting pitchers did not go far into the game whatsoever. Opening day, we saw JT Brubaker last just three innings. Saturday afternoon, we saw Mitch Keller. He lasted four innings. And then yesterday afternoon, with Bryce Wilson, he only went four innings as well. So the Pirates have yet to have a starter make it out of the fourth inning, or beyond the fourth inning, I should say, in a game so far this season. And I understand, you know, that spring training was shortened. Maybe guys didn't necessarily get to stretch out as much in spring training as what they could have or should have had it been the full length of spring training. But these guys should have been throwing in the offseason. I understand they couldn't use team facilities, but these guys 100% should have been throwing in facilities near their home, something, a field, whatever it may be, Get out onto a mound, start throwing, loosen up your arms so that when you got into spring training and the lockout officially ended, you were already stretched out to an extent. Didn't necessarily need to be 100% stretched out, but much more stretched out than what you were when you entered spring training as things were now. I mean, the Pirates' bullpen has taken a significant toll over the last three games. Now, the Pirates were able to get out of yesterday's game with just three pitchers in relief as Miguel Yahure went two innings, Will Crow went two innings, and then Heath Hembry went an inning. It was actually Crow who finished out the game for the Pirates after Yahure and then Hembry. But the Pirates weren't necessarily as fortunate the past two days because they dropped those contests, especially opening day when it was a 9-0 thrashing from the Cardinals. I mean, the Pirates went through five pitchers after Brubaker, in part because Underwood suffered an injury, but the bullpen cannot be getting taxed this early on in the season, especially when the Pirates' rotation needs to prove itself to the coaching staff, to the front office. The starting pitchers, whether it be JT Brubaker, Mitch Keller, Bryce Wilson, Jose Quintana, Zach Thompson, whoever it is, they need to be going a minimum of five innings. They need to be going out there throwing strikes. I understand you don't necessarily want them going over 100 pitches, but Derek Shelton has had this problem before, and it's come up again now where he limits pitchers too much. I mean... These are starting pitchers who are used to going out there every five days and throwing at least five to six innings. The times where they don't throw, 
more than five innings is an off day for them. Now, Brubaker, he only went three in part because of getting hit hard early. Keller going four, Wilson going five, rather four. That's not going to cut it in the future. And maybe that'll change down the line when their arms start to get a little bit more stretched out. But again, had they came into spring training with their arms already stretched out, their first couple of spring training starts could have went three innings, and then they would have bumped it up to four and five. So rather than seeing Brubaker get pulled after three innings Thursday, maybe he would have gotten pulled after four. Wilson, Keller, rather than getting pulled after four, they could have gone five. Now, I understand they're going to have an off day today because of the postponement before tomorrow's home opener, but you can't rely on that game being postponed in order to give your bullpen a little bit of a break. And while David Bednar hasn't been used so far by the Pirates out of the bullpen, I would have to say that he's probably one of the only arms, if not the only arm, that has yet to be used. And the Pirates cannot be putting themselves in that position Especially when, right now, with Rowanzi Contreras being called up to pitch out of the bullpen as a result of Dwayne Underwood Jr.'s injury, the Pirates currently have no other pitchers on their 40-man roster, meaning they would have to make two roster moves in order to get them into Pittsburgh, meaning one to get them on the 40-man roster, and then one to get them on the active roster. And the Pirates don't necessarily want to be in that position. They didn't want to be calling up Rowanzi Contreras this early in the season, but they had to because he was the only other pitcher on the 40-man roster, so they were able to get him into St. Louis by making just one move rather than making two moves. And so you can't be taxing your bullpen early because then guys are going to be tired. You either then have to throw them tired or you have to continue trotting out your starting pitcher six, seven innings into the ball game when they can't go that long anymore. They're close, if not over, the 100 pitch mark, all because you decided to only throw JT Brubaker for three innings Thursday afternoon, and then Keller and Wilson only went four. And it's the same thing over and over again with Derek Shelton, where he tries to micromanage this Pirates team and try to really, in essence, do too much. I understand you want to protect your guys. I understand you want to keep their arms healthy and keep them as a whole healthy. But you cannot be in this position where you're turning to the bullpen this early. If you want to turn to the bullpen this early into a game, then at this point you might as well not even have a true starting rotation and you just use a starting pitcher as an opener. And then you continue to just rotate guys in terms of appearances. I mean, really, that's what the Pirates would almost have to do because throwing a guy three innings like JT Brubaker did Thursday afternoon on opening day is no different than using a long reliever as an opener for three innings and then going to the bullpen. It's not. There's no difference in that whatsoever other than the official title that Brubaker has of either a starting pitcher or a long reliever. So again, Derek Shelton needs to figure it out and find a way to get these guys going deeper into the ballgames. And if this problem persists, as the season goes on, the Pirates are going to be in even bigger trouble than where they are now. The pitching, especially the rotation, was already set to be the biggest question mark of this Pirates roster entering the season currently. And when you only have 
starters going three or four innings into a ball game, it's only going to make matters worse. And the fact that the Pirates don't have anybody else on the 40-man roster to call up is an even bigger issue for them. A little bit of mishap in terms of organization from Ben Charrington and the baseball ops staff. But again, the Pirates shouldn't be putting themselves, particularly Derek Shelton, shouldn't be putting themselves in that spot where they have to turn to anybody else unless, of course, there happens to be another injury. Now, there have been two players for the Pirates that have really stuck out early on in the season. One of them, not surprising to me. The other one, certainly a little bit of a surprise. We'll start with the one that wasn't a surprise. That being Diego Castillo, who got the opportunity to make the opening day roster, as I mentioned before the season started, certainly earning it out of spring training. Castillo was thrown into the mix a little sooner than he probably would have expected with Key Brian Hayes going down on opening day, having to be slotted in at third base for Hayes, getting his first big league hit in the St. Louis Cardinals series. But, I mean, as a whole, Diego Castillo has been on fire for the Pirates. 12, rather, 9 at-bats so far this season for Castillo. Four hits in those 9 at-bats and has just found a way to consistently get on base. One of those hits being a double. He does have two strikeouts, so 22 strikeout percentage, a little bit higher than what you would like, but again, it's also a very small sample size. And so I'm not necessarily all that concerned about it right now, but for Castillo to come out of the gate hitting four for nine, certainly a great sign of his going forward that he's going to be a mainstay in this Pirates lineup. And so much so that at this point, I don't see how Derek Shelton can take him out of the lineup, which is why I was confused when the lineup came out today for the game that ultimately didn't happen. Castillo was not in the starting lineup. For what reason? He started Friday's, rather Saturday's contest, started yesterday, and then was going to have a day off? I mean, these guys are used to playing every day. There's no reason why they shouldn't be continuing to play every day. Castillo certainly no exception to that. He should be penciled in right now as the everyday second baseman ahead of Michael Chavis, ahead of Kevin Newman, ahead of Josh Van Meter, even Cole Tucker, Hoy Park, certainly. I mean, he should be ahead of all of them. And the fact that Derek Shelton just continues to rotate this roster like it's a 10-year-old Little League team is just honestly embarrassing. It truly is. And guys who deserve to play aren't getting as much playing time compared to those who shouldn't be playing. And as I've said before on this show, you play your best nine the majority of the games. I understand everybody is going to need an off day. Aside from the team off days, nobody's going to be expected to play all 162 games for their respective club. But at the same time, though, you can't be giving guys a day off every three, four days. You're never going to be successful giving guys a day off every three to four days in the big leagues. You're just not going to. These guys are used to playing almost every day, if not truly every day in the minor leagues. So go out there and let them continue to live in that momentum, continue to play every single day, 
and develop the same habits that got them to this point. Now, the other player that has been successful early on for the Pirates that I consider to be a surprise is catcher Roberto Perez. Now, when the Pirates signed Roberto Perez, his glove behind the plate certainly was not going to be why the Pirates were in question of whether or not he was a good signing. That was always going to be his bat that they questioned and always going to be his bat of whether or not it would pan out for them. Well, so far through this season, the first three games, Roberto Perez, 3 for 10. He has a 300 average, of course, if you do the math. Two walks. He does have three strikeouts. So again, strikeout percentage a little high at 30%, just like with Diego Castillo, a small sample size. So hopefully we, we will see that number come down for Roberto Perez. But when Roberto Perez, to this point, was hitting well below 200 in terms of, or right around 200 on the on his career coming into this season, nobody knew what to expect from his bat. Was he going to be a guy that could pan out and hit between 240-250 over the course of the 162-game season? Or was he going to be a guy that you had to slot in at the bottom of the lineup just to have him bat and get his glove behind the plate? And right now, he's showing the Pirates that he can, in fact, be a guy who hits and does well behind the plate, which is exactly what the Pirates needed. They needed that person to be able to go in there, catch nine innings, get a hit or two per game, drive in a few runs in the process, and go out there and be a solid veteran bat in this lineup. Now, the Pirates, they do have a handful of those, along with Perez, Ben Gamble, Yoshi Tsutsugo, Daniel Vogelback, and it's not to say that none of them necessarily haven't done well for the Pirates, but Roberto Perez, along with the rookie Diego Castillo, have certainly stood out to me as two guys that deserve to be playing every day. Not that Roberto Perez wouldn't be playing every day as the catcher and the starting catcher at that, but those two have shown that they need to be in the lineup much more often than not going forward here for the Pittsburgh Pirates. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show. When we return, discussing the Pittsburgh Steelers, the unfortunate news surrounding the team, and also Mock Draft Monday number three, coming up here in just a few minutes on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
and we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show discussing the latest with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And before I get into today's Mock Draft Monday, unfortunate news that absolutely has to be discussed. The passing of Dwayne Haskins, this occurring Saturday morning around 6.40 a.m. down in Florida. As I mentioned on Friday, he was down there hanging out with Mitch Trubisky, some of the receivers, running backs that were invited down to Trubisky's house to just throw around, you know, get to work with each other a little bit before mini camps and OTAs and really just have a good time down there with being teammates. And unfortunately, Haskins was seen Saturday morning walking alongside the highway when he was in fact hit by a dump truck that could not stop in time by the time that paramedics got to the scene Haskins was unfortunately gone at that point. And again, it's just sad for the NFL community. It's sad for the Steelers. And last but certainly not least, Haskins' family. I mean, that's a phone call nobody wants to receive. And it's a phone call that nobody wants to have to receive. But Haskins never really got an opportunity with the Steelers, the one that he was working so hard to get for this season. Because, let's be honest here, if Ben Roethlisberger couldn't play last season, like when we saw he tested positive for COVID, it was going to be Mason Rudolph under center anyways. And at best, Haskins would get to serve as a backup and would only enter the game if something had happened to Roethlisberger and Rudolph. So Haskins being signed was all about getting him ready to compete for the starting job in 2022 and just a few days before turning 25, passing away and then never getting to compete for that job. And again, it's just a terrible tragedy for the NFL, the Steelers, the city of Pittsburgh, and then of course the Haskins family. It's unfortunate that this happened and I hope, I truly hope that Mitch Trubisky does not feel guilty about this whatsoever because all he was doing, as I said on Friday, was trying to demonstrate the qualities of being a leader and being a great teammate. And it was just an unfortunate accident that happened with Haskins that we're having to have this conversation today. I mean, had everything been going normally we would have pretended well not pretended this wouldn't have happened so there wouldn't have been anything to talk about with it and it's just it's frustrating to figure out why this happened we don't necessarily know all of the details behind it yet and unfortunately until we do this is all the further that can be said about it and I'm not even going to dive into Adam Schefter's ridiculous tweet because honestly I could spend all day sitting here complaining up one side and down the other about how unprofessional and immature his tweet was and the fact that he posted it making it that much worse. So what I am going to do is get right back into Mock Draft Monday number three starting with pick 20 in the first round going with Jamison Williams out of Alabama as a wide receiver. Now, 
Jamison Williams, along with Chris Olave, are considered to be the top two receivers in this class. Whether the Steelers end up with Olave, whether they end up with Jamison Williams, the Steelers aren't going to be able to go wrong in that regard. Williams and Olave, two of the best receivers coming out of college football. They have a lot of potential going forward, and both of them would be exceptional targets for Mitch Trubisky to try and sling the ball to next season. I think Jamison Williams and Chris Olave would both mesh well with Mitch Trubisky, and then being slotted in there alongside Claypool and Johnson would give the Steelers another trio of monsters as wide receivers that are going to be imminent threats, and teams are going to have to be aware of all three of them and where they are at at all times. Now, why I went with Jamison Williams over Chris Olave was because Jamison Williams, to me, is much more of a deep threat wide receiver, somebody who can go up and bring in a ball over the top of the defensive back. Not that Chris Olave can't, but Jamison Williams certainly much more capable of it than Olave standing in at six foot two. So again, Jamison Williams, round one, pick 20 for me in this mock draft. Now again, quarterbacks started to go off the board just after I made the 20th selection. So I had to trade up into the second round with the Detroit Lions acquiring the 34th overall pick, the second one of the second round in exchange for the Steelers' 52nd overall pick and a sixth rounder that was set to be for 225th overall. Detroit accepting that deal, so then at the 34th overall pick, went out and got Desmond Ritter, the quarterback out of Cincinnati. Now, as I've talked about a lot over the past few shows, I am very, very high on Desmond Ritter, and I personally believe he is the best quarterback in this draft class, the one that is the most ready to compete now in terms of skill at the NFL level. And if he sits for a year or two behind Trubisky, it's only going to get him better going forward. As I mentioned on Friday, Dan Orlovsky providing a comparison of Alex Smith to somebody that Desmond Ritter could potentially pan out to be. Of course, Ritter with a little bit more mobility and the potential to be slightly better than Alex Smith. So again, if that were the case, the Steelers would be getting a solid quarterback as the future of their franchise. And I think it's important to make a note here that despite the selection of Ritter, it doesn't take away from the fact that the Steelers are going to continue to mourn the loss of Haskins. And we can talk about the quarterback draft plans while also recognizing the tragedy that happened with Dwayne Haskins. You can do both. It doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. Now, third round, 84th overall pick, I went with Kirby Joseph, the safety out of Illinois. Now, Terrell Edmonds is testing the waters in free agency. So the Steelers, they don't really have anybody to line up as of right now next to Minka Fitzpatrick. There were some rumors about Tyron Matthew, but again, those are just simply rumors. And so at this point, Kirby Joseph drafting him in the third round, somebody that I can see 
fitting the Steelers mold. Very hard hitter, very much aggressive, can stop the run, can stop the pass, and would complement Minka Fitzpatrick very well. And Kirby Joseph playing in the Big Ten certainly has a lot of experience going up against some of the top guys in the game of college football and certainly having the potential to have that be translated into the NFL, something that I can see Kirby Joseph doing very easily would take a few preseason games to get him totally adjusted. But again, I think it's something that it would only be a matter of time of when he settles in and becomes a solid player, complimenting Minka Fitzpatrick rather than being somebody who takes a season or two to develop the way that we pretty much saw with Terrell Edmonds. Now, moving into the fourth round, 138th overall, I went with Zach Tom, the tackle out of Wake Forest. Of course, Tom working for Wake Forest in the ACC, just like I mentioned with Kirby Joseph, working against some of the best players in the game of college football, all of them being in Power 5 conferences, all of the picks, I guess I should say, with the exception of Desmond Ritter, with Cincinnati not being in a Power 5, all of them so far have been elite players, or in elite conferences, I should say. Now, Zach Tom, capable of protecting against the run, capable of protecting against the pass. He is a big body that could suit well on the outside for the Steelers, someone that can be that threat. And he is certainly very mobile out there at left tackle. I mean, right now, Tom will stand in at 6'4", 304. I mean, his 40 time was 494. For a 300-pound offensive lineman, a 494-40 shows that he can still move pretty darn fast. And for Zach Tom to be able to run that quickly at the combine shows that he can use that mobility to his advantage, whether it be pulling as a tackle or whether it be just driving a guy downfield with his block. Now, in the sixth round, I went with a running back, 208th overall, Ty Chandler out of North Carolina. And again, you might be questioning, why would I go with a running back this late in the draft when I mentioned in past episodes about good running backs going third, fourth round? The truth being that when Ty Chandler fell to me in the sixth round, it was just too good to be true not to select him. Ty Chandler is a guy who easily could have gone in round four, round five for for sure. So to be able to get him in round six was truly a gift. And when you look at his stats last season, I mean, he averaged six yards per carry for North Carolina, over a thousand yards, 13 touchdowns on the ground. I mean, you can't get much better than that. And as I've said already, another power five guy that the Steelers would draft out of the ACC, showing that he can work against the elite defenses. And just as I mentioned with somebody like Najee Harris, who he would complement well, he's very explosive. He sees a hole, he goes to it, attacks, tries to get through it, and then get into the second level. Somebody not like Le'Veon Bell, who kind of dances around and patiently waits for something to happen and then gets tackled in the backfield in the process. And that's more so like a power running back strategy, the one that Najee Harris, the one that Ty Chandler have 
Najee Harris obviously being a much bigger back than Ty Chandler, but Ty Chandler is certainly an option for the Steelers late in the draft to complement Najee Harris. And then finally, the last pick, 7th overall, 7th round I should say, 241st overall, going with Jack Jones, the corner out of Arizona State. Again, this is somebody who I have taken before in these mock draft Mondays, somebody who I think could be of late round value to the Steelers in the secondary, even just as a depth piece, able to come off of the bench and make a strong impact for the Steelers, has done relatively well against the pass, relatively well against the run. Certainly some areas where he's going to have to improve as a seventh round draft pick, but he can certainly get the job done for the Steelers as a depth piece and then continue to develop in his first season and beyond and hopefully become a solid late round pick for the Pittsburgh Steelers if they choose to go that route. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show. When we return, we'll be discussing Pittsburgh Penguins hockey with communication specialist Paul Steigerwald right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. When the days are cold and the cards all fold and the saints we see are all made of gold. When your dreams all fail and the wounds we hail are the worst of all and the bloods run stale. No! 
And we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show discussing the Pittsburgh Penguins, where I'm joined now by Penguins communication specialist, along with former broadcaster Paul Staggerwald. Paul, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time to be here this afternoon. Good to be with you, Drew. So getting into it here, um, starting with Ricard Raquel, the newest member of the Penguins, been here for a few weeks after coming over from Anaheim at the trade deadline. In the early time of him being a Penguin, what have you seen from him, especially since he got moved up into the top six? Well, I like you know the fact that he has a lot of different weapons uh, in his arsenal. He's a he's got a great shot. He's a good skater. He has a really good, high hockey IQ. Obviously, he's able to play well with the best players. Uh, he's a goal scorer. He's got that goal scorer's mentality. He shoots the puck uh, with authority, and he knows where he's putting it. Um, and you know, he's a, he's a, he's got a good sized body on him, so he's he's pretty good along the wall. He's good at protecting the puck and. Uh, using his body in, in a very rough variety of ways. He's not going to blow anybody up or anything, but he's uh, physical enough. So I, I think he's a, he's got all the tools of a, of a you know, high-end uh, quality goal scorer offensive threat. And so uh, it was a good acquisition for the Penguins and something they needed. I don't think they would have had to make that deal if Kasperi Kapanen had been having the kind of year that we all wish he would have had. Uh, I think they felt there was still a void there in terms of having one more weapon in the top six. So they kind of had to make that deal because Kapanen just wasn't getting it done. And you mentioned specifically there with Kapanen brought in to be on Malkin's line to compliment him playing on the opposite side as Jason Zucker, of course that being the original plan. But in yesterday's contest against the Predators, we saw Mike Sullivan change things up getting Ricard Raquel with Sidney Crosby and more often than not when those two were on the ice together things were very productive of course of course they were combining for each of the three goals in one way or another whether it be Ricard Raquel assisting Crosby or both of them assisting Zucker is that something we could see Mike Sullivan sticking with going forward and then moving Rust to partner with Malkin on the second line? I think it's a possibility. I don't think that's really what the intent was yesterday. I mm -hmm. think it was a case of Raquel and Crosby ending up on the ice together in the middle of line changes. And they ended up clicking. Uh, there was one other time when that happened. Uh, I think it was in a four-on-four -four situation against Minnesota on the road when Crosby and Raquel went in on a two-on-one. And Sid waited to the last possible second to pass it across to him. And he made a real nice play because he shot the puck. He was able to lift it in tight up over the glove of the goaltender and score a goal. And that was the first time that I saw those two kind of hook up for a play, and I thought, man, those two look like they might work out well together. It took a while before we actually saw them in a situation where they could make a couple of plays like they did yesterday. So now I think the light has gone on. I mean, they had already moved Russ down to play right wing with Gino for a while. They had Evan Rodriguez up there on the right wing. But I think now it wouldn't surprise me a bit if when Malkins comes back from a, I'm sure is going to be a suspension, if they give it a try to see if uh, Raquel works out on that right wing with Sid and Gensel and then Russ to play with Malkin. Either way, it gives you uh, quite a bit of weapons in your top six, especially with Zucker back. I think it kind of completes the picture there. So I think either way, the Penguins are in pretty good shape in terms of the, uh, the you know the first and second lines being able to produce. So then along the lines of Malkin's actions in yesterday's game and 
only being listed as a double minor, but set for a hearing here this evening. That certainly not being justified, but probably occurring as a result of all of the excessive and late hits that he's taken over the years. So in that instant, should it be up to Gino or in some cases Sid to have to defend themselves or should the Penguins roster be constructed so that they have a bruiser, for lack of better words, to take care of that business, even if they don't necessarily fit Mike Sullivan's playing style of speed first? Well, it would be nice. It's not something you can really address now. Mm-hmm. that hasn't been addressed up to now. I don't know what would make anybody think the Penguins are suddenly going to decide to do it. Um, you know, it would be nice to have a guy playing alongside of Sid or Gino who could handle that. But that was what kind of an isolated sort of moment in, of compulsive uh, anger by Evgeny Malkin as a result of being, you know, roughed up a little bit by Borovieski, who's a tough guy and you know, gets in a lot of fights, and he's a big hitter. He's kind of noted for that. So I think Gino just kind of lost his mind for a second and got a stick up into his face, and now he's going to have to pay the price. But it's a larger question, and, you know, I don't know going forward if the Penguins will ever decide that that's the way they want to go, but uh, we'll see in the playoffs how much it means, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they don't fight in the playoffs much, but you do have to have guys to kind of keep people honest and um, – Last year, I thought the Penguins got abused a lot in the playoffs. and But that was going on around the league. There was a lot of cross-checking, a lot of scrums after the whistle. And uh, the league supposedly has cracked, cracked down on cross-checking. Uh, we'll see if it continues into the playoffs. But I think it's contributed to the fact that a lot of guys have been able to score some goals in around the net. Uh, they don't think they're taking the abuse they were last year. So we'll see how Gino and Sid fare in terms of the, the abuse in the playoffs. But going forward... Uh, if the Penguins have to retool their roster, we don't know what's going to happen with Malkin and Latang and their contracts. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if Ron Hextall and Brian Burke decide to kind of change the, the image of the Penguins a little bit more to their liking. It's just not something they were really in a position to do since they got here last year. So then, even including yesterday's game against the Predators, hasn't necessarily gone the way that Mike Sullivan or anybody in the front office would have liked as the Penguins have won just four of their last 11 games despite having much of its best lineup in place. Do you see that being a result of end-of-season fatigue, playing against tough opponents on a nightly basis, or a combination of the two? I think it's kind of a combination of a lot of factors. I think, to a great extent, I believe the Penguins kind of went on an amazing run there, and they, they really kind of began to believe in themselves. And then you know, they, they, they started talking about how we could do something special this year, and that was kind of code words for, you know, we could possibly challenge for a Stanley Cup. And I think that they maybe have gotten into a little bit of a malaise here where they don't see, you know, they were stuck in either second or third place. The Capitals were pretty far behind them. They weren't feeling much heat from behind. And, you know, the, the design, the, the idea of winning the division was nice. If they could pull it off, but, you know, for a while there, Carolina was – pretty well solid in first place too and I think really the Penguins probably created a situation where the Rangers got closer to Carolina because the Penguins couldn't beat the Rangers I mean if the Penguins had beaten the Rangers a couple of those games they wouldn't have been as close to Carolina and then you know we would be talking about maybe Rangers taking over Carolina for first place so the losing by the Penguins has definitely changed the you know the, the look of things in the Metropolitan Division it's hard for me to say which it is I honestly think that this team being older 
having a pretty good idea of uh, the difference between regular season and playoffs, having been eliminated in the first round, even last year when they thought they had a pretty good team. I think they're anxious to get to the playoffs. And as much as you want to play as hard as you can and, and put your best foot forward as you say you want to get ready for the playoffs, there's nothing like playoff hockey, even at this time of year, of you know seven or eight games before you even get to the tournament. And I just think the Penguins aren't as engaged in the whole idea of getting ready for the playoffs quite yet. And I think it's going to hurt them because you can't turn it on like a faucet, but at the same time, we still have some games here. Penguins have some games against non-playoff teams at the end of the year. They could maybe get some of their mojo going again before they get to the postseason. But, Drew, if you look at the Penguins' mm-hmm. record, it hasn't been good against playoff teams this year, at least not as good as it has been against non-playoff teams. Against non-playoff teams, they're like 22-2-2, two and two, something like that. And against playoff teams, they're like, I can't remember the exact number. I think I had it in front of me. I could probably find it real quick. Hang on a second. We'll see if I can find it. Okay. The number that, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the record against uh, playoff teams is 9-14-3 since November, since mm-hmm. mid-November. So they're five games under five hundred against playoff teams. And, of course, four of those losses are in the last ten days to Colorado and Rangers. We're talking to Penguins communication specialist Paul Staggerwald. Now, along those same lines, you know, talking about Washington, the Penguins' recent struggles against teams like the Rangers, given that earlier in the season, the Penguins were much more competitive against the Hurricanes than they were so with the Rangers, especially there were a couple matchups where the Rangers just dominated the Penguins in all aspects of the game. Would it be an opportunity for the Penguins to have more playoff success if they were in one of those wildcard spots where they went to either Carolina or went to Florida rather than a first-round matchup with the Rangers, especially given that statistic there that you just mentioned with nine wins compared to 14 losses against playoff teams since November? I think it's a matter of picking your poison. I mean, Carolina is a hell of a hockey team. Uh, They're really structured. They're really good defensively. Their question mark is the same question mark that I have for Florida, and that's their goaltender. I mean, I know Freddie Anderson has been a a stellar goaltender in the regular season for them. Uh, But in the past, he's kind of, you know, been unreliable in the playoffs. And I would say the same thing for Sergei Bobrovsky. And I don't think that you should expect Igor Shostarkin suddenly fall apart in the playoffs. So in the respect of the goaltending, uh, I think definitely uh, the Penguins wouldn't be in too bad a shape if they had to go elsewhere and not play the Rangers. On the other hand, you know, Florida can really score, and Carolina is a really good team. So, And I don't think we should draw too many conclusions from what the Penguins were able to do against the Rangers or not Mm -hmm. able to do. In the one game, uh, they were playing their third game in four nights. Geno was sick that day. They got blown out. They played a horrible game. Uh, they came back and played pretty good at home and lost by a goal. Uh, and then they, they, they went up to New York, and then Sid got sick that day. So they didn't really get a chance to put their best foot forward. So in some ways, that you know, the Rangers uh, probably are feeling pretty good about themselves against the Penguins. Mm-hmm. I would caution them, and I would caution Penguins fans to worry too much about the New York Rangers as compared to, say, Florida or Carolina. I actually think the Penguins could beat the Rangers. So then, as the roster stands right now, especially given the flux of the 
lineup throughout the season. The Penguins, they really have seven defensemen that can go in and do the job when asked, including Mark Friedman, who we've seen play more so on his offhand than his dominant hand. We're talking a lot about the playoffs, so if the playoffs were to start either tonight or sometime within the next week, who would you see being the odd man out of the defensive pairings? Well, that's a good question. I think uh, Marcus Patterson has been uh, just okay, and uh, kind of he's kind of playing at a level that I actually think that he can play at. That's I, I don't think he's much better than what we've seen from him. He has his moments where he looks really good, and then moments when not so good. But I think that's who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Friedman is an interesting character. I, you know, he's he provides a little element of uh, he, he's an agitator, and he he can get you know good players off their game and get maybe maybe be a bit of a distraction sometimes that comes in handy but you know he's not a very big guy so you know you have a problem with that part of the aspect of it i just don't think the penguins defense is particularly deep like if you're going to win a stanley cup you got to have nine really good defensemen and i'm i i i'm hoping that nathan Beaulieu, the guy at the trade deadline is going to get healthy by the time the playoffs roll around because they might be able to you know plug him in there at some point but they're still, you know, having a little issue with their defense because they, they changed up their deep pairings again yesterday. They had Matheson with Latang, and I don't like that pairing at all. Uh, and they had Dumoulin playing with John Marino. I think when the playoffs start, it'll be Dumoulin and Latang. I think it'll be a Matheson and Ruedel, and I think it'll be Pedersen and Marino. That would be my guess. Will be the six they'll go with when they start the playoffs. Um, and I don't think that's terrible. But I'm not. It doesn't make me do cartwheels either. So I, I, I think the key for the Penguins is going to be how they defend as a group, uh, how they can kill penalties, which they've done really well all year, and their ability to play more in the offensive zone. You know, the problem with the Rangers is the Penguins have had a tough time generating offense against them. They're the team that's played the best defensive hockey against Pittsburgh, which is kind of ironic because you don't think of them as being that kind of a team necessarily. But they have played really well defensively against Pittsburgh, and as we know, Drew. And in the last few years, it's those defensive teams, those teams that play really good D that have given the Penguins fits. And I don't know if the Rangers, if that's their DNA, but it certainly has been good against the Penguins. who haven't been able to generate any more than 25, 26, 24 shots, 21 shots in one of the other in the other game against them. And that's well below the Penguins' average, you know, shots per game. Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep an eye on too. But there's so many really good teams in the Eastern Conference, teams that can score, uh, teams that have playoff experience, teams that don't have playoff experience but that are loaded with talent like Florida. It's just an amazing array of really good hockey teams that the Penguins are going to have to go past to get to a conference final or a Stanley Cup final. Probably the most competitive I've seen in the Eastern Conference in many, many years. So you talked about you know the defensive structure that the Rangers have in place. Of course, two recent playoff matchups with the Islanders that haven't gone the Penguins' way in part because of that defensive structure, in part because of, especially last season, Tristan Jari's mental errors. But how do you see the Penguins attacking the playoffs going forward in trying to work around that defensive structure that the Rangers have in place and try to break it down? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, that's up to the coaching staff. They're going to have to find a way. Um, and I think it starts really with the Penguins in their own end and, and, and how they get through the neutral zone and you know get, get into the offensive zone and make things happen. It's all connected. 
one of the problems I see with the Penguins against the Rangers, and I don't know if it would be something they would be as concerned with in the playoffs, um, but they seem to have the yips after they lost 5-1 to one to them. Almost like they were too respectful of their ability to get up ice. They like to get guys behind the Penguins' defense and stretch passes and things like that. And I felt like the Penguins were too cautious and maybe not playing on their toes as much. And if they have that doubt about their ability to really pressure the Rangers in their end for fear that they're going to get burned coming out, you know, with the Rangers coming out of their own zone in a hurry, that could be a problem. So I, I, I don't know. I, I like to look at the game the Penguins won against the Rangers, which was a one nothing win. Um, in that game, the Rangers were really good defensively at the beginning of the game. The Penguins had like one shot in 13 minutes or something like that in the first period. And then in the second period, the Rangers had only one shot in 13 minutes. And the Penguins kind of turned their game up a notch in the second period of that game. They only won one to nothing. But that was the best game the Penguins played against the Rangers. And it was a little of this and a little of that. I think it's going to be a defensive struggle to a point uh, just because the Rangers seem to have found a way to play that way. They've got a really good defense core, better than the Penguins in my opinion. So that could be the story of that series if the two teams meet. The ability for the Penguins to find ways to generate offense against a Ranger team that has really played well defensively against them. And then one final question here for you. Yesterday against Nashville, it was Casey DeSmith that got the start for the Penguins. And especially going back to the early portions of the season, he wasn't necessarily the most consistent. He'd go out one night, play very well. The next night he'd go out and get pulled early, even as early as five minutes into the second period. And a lot of the speculation around the deadline was that the Penguins were going to go out and bring in a new backup goaltender, but Mike Sullivan, Ron Hextall sticking with DeSmith, and that gamble has paid off since the deadline. But what does it say about how DeSmith has worked with Andy Kyoto as the new goaltending coach for him to be able to turn it around at this point in the season? It says a lot. I think he's a character guy. I think he, the team responds well to him. I think his body of work in general has been really good for the Penguins. Uh, better than I think people give him credit for. Yeah, he had some issues early this season. He was coming off groin surgery. Um, I, I think Casey DeSmith is a very capable backup. I think if they had had him at their disposal last year in that Islander series, they probably would have defeated the Islanders because they would have played game six with him in the net. And I think he would have won because the Penguins were ready to win that game. I really believe that. But Jari was ruined by then because of what happened in game five. Uh, I never thought that the Penguins should go get a goalie this year. I didn't think they had needed it. They got Louis Domingue, who's an experienced guy, pretty good goaltender. He got hurt, so that kind of changed the scenario a bit. But he's back playing again. Penguins don't have any problems in goal, in my opinion. Casey DeSmith, to me, uh, you know, I thought he'd play sooner than he did uh, yesterday. I thought he might play in one of those Colorado games, especially mm -hmm. the second Colorado game, because, to me, he's turned in the best goaltending performance in the last couple of weeks, which was the win in Minnesota, the only win the Penguins had had, by the way, in their last six games. And he played great in that game. One of his best games I've seen him play as a Penguin. And he actually topped it yesterday in, in the win against Nashville. He gave the Penguins a chance to, to win that game in overtime. So I, there's something about him. I, I think that in some ways, at this time of year, a guy like him is relishing the, to play more than the other guys. Like I was saying earlier, I, I think guys are kind of, you know, they're playing the game, but they're not like totally engaged in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the mission because they want to get to the playoffs. 
Whereas Casey DeSmith, he's, he's champing at the bit to, to uh, get a chance to play. So when he goes in there, he is so excited to be playing. And I mm-hmm. think it rubs off on the rest of the team. And I, I was really happy for him yesterday because I really thought once they put him back in there, he would get the next win for the Penguins. And I wasn't wrong. All right. believe that's going to wrap things up here. Paul, once again, thank you for coming on and best of luck to you going forward. All right, Drew. Thanks a lot. Nice being yep. on with you. Thank you. There you have it. That was Paul Staggerwald, Penguins communication specialist. You've seen him or heard him previously on Penguins broadcasts, whether it be TV or radio. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show. The next episode will not be until Monday, April 18th, a week from today. Friday's episode not happening due to an announcing commitment that I have here on campus. So again, the next episode will be Monday, April 18th at 3 o'clock, I'll be speaking to WPXI in Pittsburgh's Albie Oxenreiter to discuss the latest with the Pittsburgh Steelers as the NFL draft continues to approach. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your day, enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see you Monday at 3 o'clock for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates.